This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Did you know that every cell in your body has a sex? That means men and women are different when it comes to health, yet women have historically been underrepresented in biomedical research. Judy Regensteiner says that leads to knowledge gaps about how diseases impact women, which is why she co-founded the Center for Women's Health Research at CU Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora. Next week, the center hosts the National Conference on Women's Health Research at the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs. Judy, welcome. Thank you. Well, thank you for your welcome. Yeah. Why have researchers left women out of clinical studies in the past? I think in the past, people worried about possible detrimental effects of experiments on women, thinking a lot about pregnant women or older women. However, there really isn't a good reason why you wouldn't include women. Um, Another reason that was given is that women have menstrual cycles, which makes it a little more complicated to study them since they have hormonal fluctuations. But again, that's something we can definitely still work with. So there really isn't a good reason. But fortunately, it was uh, realized that this was an issue and now changes are occurring. And are there different types of clinical studies and and how that would then impact the results if you said using women in those studies? There are different types of studies ranging from the most basic where you're not studying women, you're studying cells. But again, those cells do have a sex, as you mentioned. And then looking at uh, clinical research where you do study people, translational research where you try to take the findings in basic research and translate them to clinical research, which is a lot of what goes on now. Epidemiologic research study uses data sets. And of course, big data, personalized medicine type studies are also there. And you you mentioned that there there is this uh, gap between uh, men and women in terms of the clinical studies, but there has been progress uh, over the last two decades. In 1993, Congress passed the National Institutes of Health Revitalization Act. Uh, the law mandated women and minorities uh, be included in clinical studies funded by the NIH. But it seems that gender imbalance still persists. Why is that? Well, although a law was passed, it's been a little slow to... Uh to see the catch-up. For instance, in 2001, the Institute of Medicine, now called the National Academy of Medicine in Washington, uh, published a report called Sex Matters, the Biological Basis of Health, which made it startlingly clear that in many, many diseases, in fact, most diseases, research in women trailed way behind that in men. A lot of because of that was because women were not always included in studies. And after that, things really started to change. But that was in 2001, so not so long ago. Right. And that seems fascinating to me that it took until in the last 10 to 16 years, let's say, that this has happened. It's startling. Do do you know of researchers uh, in terms of funding? uh, Is that a concern where it may be uh, more expensive to uh, do these studies with, with women because of their biological differences? Well, not only that, but really, I like to do studies. I like to see studies of sex differences. So you include both men and women. Mm-hmm. And the NIH is now starting to mandate that there be a, that both sexes be included in studies. And researchers do worry about the cost because potentially you're doubling a sample size and doing research is very expensive already. However, we do have to study both sexes. In terms of the menstrual cycle issues in women, which you're referring to, does that get more expensive? Not really. So it really is just to, doubling no. the, uh, the, the, the study size. Correct. For, uh, I mean, that is an issue, of course. Yeah. Do you include both men and women at studies in your center? I do. In my research, I look at sex differences in the cardiovascular consequences of type 2 diabetes. So I do study both men and women. However, of course, in our young 
at the Center for Women's Health Research, we have many young researchers who study the lifespan, ranging from babies in the womb to old age. And of course, pregnancy is going to be limited to women, right. and as is appropriate. But after, you know, children, boys and girls show differences, especially around puberty, and then middle-aged women and men have a lot of differences. So I'm going to say that there's not a time when you could say you should only study both sexes. There might be reasons to study issues in women or men, but just that women be included in studies, I think that's very important. We mentioned the law in 2001 uh, and also the study that came out from the Institute of Medicine, which is now the uh, uh, National Academy of Medicine. With that said, how do you know that the gender inequality, uh, that it still exists in biomedical clinical studies? Well, in 2010, the National Academy of Medicine published a follow-up report where they actually did an in-depth dive and looked at at how uh, the the gaps still persisted or did not. And they found, in fact, that there had been significant progress, but the gaps still did persist. So there's still a lot of work to do. And uh, of course, that's an exciting opportunity for researchers who want to study sex differences in women's health. So uh, that's good in a way. But we want to make sure that women get the treatments that they need, as we do for men as well. And I should mention that law was 1993, not, not right. 2001. Uh, is this also a concern at the very early stages of medical research, the, the the gender inequality, let's say all the way down to when they're doing research on animals and things like that? Absolutely. It turned out uh, a recent report, and this was just a few years ago, showed that 97% of the animals in studies used in basic studies were male. And yeah. most of the cells that were studied were male. And as you noted at the very beginning, even cells have a sex. So we need to be studying both sexes. And again, there are some studies that would only study one sex or another. For instance, if you're going to study prostate cancer, you're going to study men. If you're going to study breast cancer, you're going to study women, mostly. But in most cases, at least a good rationale should be included as to why we would study either only one sex or else we should include both sexes. I also understand that there's concern that if women are not well represented in medical research, there could be harmful effects in regards to drugs and treatment uh, once these things go to market. That is really true. And that's really concerning because I think most drugs out there still have not been tested adequately and women are being approved based on their effects in men, although I think this is starting to change. However, on 60 Minutes not too long ago, maybe it was about a year ago, they showed that the drug Ambien was being prescribed in the same dose for men and women and that it had far more injurious effects on women. So we need to know. We can't be guessing about drug dosages and whether one drug might be more effective in men and women. It's really important. So what role does the FDA play in this? That seems to me that would be where this could be discussed in terms of the different dosage between men and women for these drugs. The FDA is starting to play more and more of a role. I know people that work in women's health at the FDA, so they are definitely looking at it. And I think, again, it's awareness. It's not that people maliciously set out not to study women or men. It's just that it wasn't thought about that it, a drug effects might be different in men and women. And now we're starting to see that, in fact, there might be profound differences in some drugs, not all drugs, for sure. Some drugs will work the same in men and women. But we need to know. We need not to guess. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Judy Regensteiner. She directs the Center for Women's Health Research at CU Anschutz Medical Campus, and which hosts the National Conference of Women's Health Research next week. And she's joining me to discuss the gender gap in medical research. I want to talk about the specific research happening at your center. Uh, One area of focus is heart disease. According to your website, heart disease is the number one killer of women in the U.S., and women with heart disease can experience different symptoms than men. Will you share some examples of that? Sure. And that's, you know, getting to be more and more well-known, but still a little bit 
unknown. Mm -hmm. There are still people that think that women don't get heart disease. I mean, I've actually heard, you know, women don't get heart disease. And a lot of women think that breast cancer is the biggest killer of women. In fact, heart disease is much more prevalent as a killer of women. Both diseases are very frightening. But in fact, heart disease is the number one killer of both men and women. But a lot of people didn't know this about women. And the symptoms can be quite different in men and women. I want to note that they can be the same. People can report the same symptoms, but women more often might report getting what are called atypical symptoms, although women are 51% of the population, so I don't know if you <laughs> should really call it atypical. But um, women may report more jaw pain as a symptom of heart disease, neck pain, back pain, feelings of oddness, you know, maybe even flu-like symptoms, which you know you think, oh my goodness, how can I tell the difference? You know, what we say to people is if you're having a symptom and it's strange and it's persisting, get yourself checked. Uh, Nobody's going to yell at you for getting yourself checked. Uh, you know, typically you hear of the, uh, you know, the, the, the tingling in the arms, maybe the indigestion feeling. Do women not feel that in terms of when they're having, a, let's say, a heart episode? Sometimes they do. And sometimes men do. The most typical symptom of heart disease that you hear is the crushing uh, chest pain that doesn't go away and persists and... I think what I most want people to know is that women do get heart disease just as much as men after the menopause years. And you need to think about it if you're getting chest pain. And if you're having strange symptoms that don't go away, maybe you need to get checked too. Don't be afraid to get checked. Women tend to take care of their families. They'll send those husbands or you know brothers in right away, but you got to take care of yourself as well. What's been uh, something surprising one of your researchers or scientists have discovered about heart disease in women? In terms of surprising findings, I think the strong links between diabetes and heart disease, I wouldn't say we've discovered that, but mm. we've contributed to that literature. Science is such an incremental process. You know, we the center is supporting 45 young scientists right now, and those include both men and women who want to study women's health and sex differences. So we have young male and female physician scientists and PhD scientists, and I'm very proud of them. They are an amazing group. And plus, we have the senior scientists. But uh, some of the work that my lab has done has led to work in some of my young scientists looking at diabetes and heart disease. And some of the things we're seeing, I would say University of Colorado a campus has been instrumental in finding out in type 2 diabetes in the young and that there might be early links to heart disease even in young people. So one of my young uh, physician colleagues is Kristen Nadeau, an endocrinologist, mm -hmm. and her work has been really pace-setting in terms of looking at the consequences of type 2 diabetes in youth. And it's worse in girls than in boys. So this has been pretty interesting. And unfortunately, there may be early links to heart disease in those uh, adolescents. So we're thinking maybe in the 30s and 40s, we might start seeing heart disease in people who have... And kids, adolescents never used to get type 2 diabetes. It used to be a disease of middle and older age. But now with lifestyle, obesity, and inactivity, it's starting to be a problem in young people. And this has been pretty startling, and it's definitely an area that the that the center has focused on, for sure. Uh, I'd imagine, uh, going back to the clinical studies, uh, including pregnant women in, in, in these studies comes with additional challenges. We mentioned some of them. Uh, but excluding them could create a gap in knowledge about how they could uh, react to treatments. What has your center done to look at this? We have young scientists that are studying, doing basic studies about pregnancy, so in cells and in animal research. Mm -hmm. But we also have people that are studying pregnancy. Now, of course, 
we have big restrictions on what kinds of studies you can do in anybody. Right. The University of Colorado, you know, is very careful in everything we do. And we are governed by an institutional review board for everything we do. But some of the studies in pregnancy include such things as, you know, dietary treatments after pregnancy and during pregnancy to try to make sure that pregnancy is healthy. So it's a lot about diet and exercise. What's a safe dose of exercise? We don't know that in pregnancy. And of course, our researchers are very carefully looking at that. And then after pregnancy, how do women get back to a healthy weight? We have a young researcher, Dr. Jacinda Nicholas, who's a a young internist, and she's looking at an app, which is kind of cool. She's developing a mobile health app to try to get pregnant women back into a healthy lifestyle after pregnancy. So we do studies in pregnancy very, very carefully, but it is really important to study pregnant women. Otherwise, we'll never know what what we should tell people. And it still surprises me that we are in such a modern time of medicine, but we're still lacking in this essential research, it seems. Absolutely. And it provides an interesting area where luckily a lot of young scientists want to go because it's so interesting and so important. But I must emphasize, again, they're extremely careful and they're very well regulated, but they are you know, it's we have to do this to give people we have to know what to tell people. If research isn't governed by evidence, it's governed by anecdote. Mm. And we do not want to be giving medical advice based on anecdote. We've talked about the the physiological differences between men and women, but what about the, the psychological differences? Women are nearly twice as likely as men to be diagnosed with depression. That's according to the Mayo Clinic. What kind of research is your center doing to better understand those differences in mental health? Nathan, that is an excellent question because part of the problem is that women more often get their symptoms of heart disease, for instance, ascribed to psychiatric causes. So it's kind of a – it's been a big issue that women who had symptoms and did have heart disease were told that they had stress and other mental health problems. So we're careful about separating that from the actual incidence of and prevalence of depression amongst women, which is a lot higher. And if you get a disease like diabetes, there's a lot more depression associated with that and with any chronic disease, quite honestly. But we're starting at the center. Some of our young scientists are starting to look at the mental health issues that go along with the physical health because surely the mind and body are connected. It's not a series of systems or not a series of symptoms. It's a system. I see. What do you think is is the best way? to close the gender gap in biomedical research? Is it a matter of policymakers and and government expanding and enforcing regulations, or is it something else? I think the excitement about women's health and sex difference research has to be communicated because we are definitely getting some of the best and brightest minds coming into the field. I think supporting, helping support these young scientists is critically important because funding is terribly difficult right now, you know, with the cutbacks and funding all over the place and at the National Institutes of Health, which is the chief funder of research in the country. Mm. And we have to, the center is very much about giving young people seed grants to get them started. And then we also have bigger mentoring grants, which we help them with. And I think it takes a village to build researchers. And with uh, dedicated mentoring and financial support and policy changes, all of that has to enter into it so that we don't lose Right minds. I mean, a young physician scientist can say, I think I'll just see patients and this research stuff is just too hard. But first of all, most of the ones who want to do research do not feel that way. Second of all, we want to try to stop that. We don't want to lose cures for disease because we don't support young scientists enough. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you. Judy Regensteiner on the gender gap in medical research. She directs the Center for Women's Health Research at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora. The center hosts the National Conference of Women's Health Research next week at the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs. Coming up, an elaborate design plan is one reason for cost overruns at the VA hospital in Aurora. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. An extravagant design plan is one reason costs skyrocketed at the new VA hospital in Aurora. That's according to a new report by the Inspector General at the Veterans Administration. The hospital, which is under construction, is now more than $1 billion over the original budget. Joining us is Mark Matthews. He's a reporter for the Denver Post based in Washington, D.C., and he's been covering the hospital for two years. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, The plan for the hospital grew over the years from a much more modest design to what the report describes as a very elaborate one. Uh, What parts of the new design drew the most criticism in the report? Well, the inspector general focused uh, a lot of attention on a concourse more than a thousand feet long. And this was part of an overall design that uh, some consultants compared to a shopping mall. And this concourse is important for a couple of reasons. Uh, for one, the individual cost of this concourse was about $120 million, which and that increased about $40 million from about an $80 million price tag just a few years ago. More importantly is that the way that this concourse kind of set up this entire building for a huge cost increase. In 2011, there was a consultant with the Jacobs Engineering Group. And if, if there's a good guy in this entire saga, it could be the Jacobs Engineering Group. Five years ago, somebody from there said, you know, guys, maybe you don't want to do it this way. If you look at a different hospital that the VA was building in Nevada, they did away with this concourse. And instead, they built their hospital facility for $620 million, a third of the price of the one here in Aurora. And like more interesting, that's an even bigger facility. That's 1.3 million square feet versus the 1.2 million square feet that you have in Aurora. So basically, this concourse that they had created a bigger, a a more expensive hospital um, that was smaller than the one that even they they had out in Nevada. And which the the cost for the hospital now is about $1.7 billion plus more costs. Does the report suggest why the design team was so insistent about this concourse design? Uh, they don't get into it too much. One of the interesting things that they do highlight is that a number of VA officials told the inspector general, they described this this design team, the, the, the JVT, which includes a, a number of different design firms, including uh, Skidmore, Owens, and Merrill. And they said they were very uncooperative, uncooperative hmm. that, you know, the VA would go and say, hey, guys, I think, you know, we might be over budget. Could you, could you try to work with us to try to bring down the budget? And the VA said that they weren't helpful. The, the IG office, they were, they were somewhat sympathetic, but they put a lot of blame on the VA too. They said, you know, I understand that they might have been difficult, but the VA, you guys have a responsibility to push back and try to get this thing under budget, and you guys didn't do that. And so that, 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 like, there's a lot of attention there. Uh, the JVT, the design team, uh, they haven't talked much about this, you know, either in the reporting that we did at the Denver Post last year or even much for this report. Besides the expensive design, are there any other big revelations in this new Inspector General's report? 
Uh, one of the things that they did talk about is is staffing here. And, you know, there was a concern raised by the inspector general that the VA didn't have enough people on this, that at one point that a technical technical representative, someone who was supposed to look over the nitty gritty details about what's working and what's not, that was that was in the hands of, of one person, a junior engineer who was in charge of this. And the inspector general said that that wasn't enough to ensure um, to ensure that this worked and to prevent what, what really was a a total and systematic failure here. I gather from the report, the hospital will be open in January 2018, but it still won't actually be completely done. Well, it's, it's, they, they think they're going to finish construction in January 2018, but it's going to take at least another six months and another $315 million on top of the $1.7 billion to actually equip it with furniture, uh, surgical equipment, like everything that you need for a modern hospital. So, you know, for a hospital that they've been talking about building for 20 years, for two decades, we're, we're probably going to have to wait even longer for it. And I have to note that the under the original plan, the hospital would be open now. Uh, with that said, how critical is this new hospital for veterans in the area? Well, it, it's important. The, the facility the VA has right now in Denver uh, is aging. The new facility is going to have some new new options, including a spinal cord facility that wasn't there before. So like a number of uh, veterans in Colorado who need that are going to be able to have that. Um, but I do know that there's some veterans, too, who are attached to the old hospital. So it's it, we're, a lot of us are very inter- interested to see you know, how the new hospital looks and how it, and more importantly, how it works. Some members of Congress, including Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado, are calling on federal prosecutors to look into a former Veterans Administration executive. His name is Glenn Hagstrom, and they want him investigated for perjury. Why is that? Well, that, that's correct. And even a, a more up-to-date news, uh, last evening, a number of members of the House Veterans Committee formally wrote to the Justice Department asking that they investigate perjury charges against Glenn Hagstrom and other members of the VA who testified before Congress. Uh, what they're saying is that, uh, in essence, they lied, that they knew that this project was headed toward uh, major budget problems, and they didn't inform Congress of, of, of that. And there have been a couple, of, and this has been kind of a long-held uh, concern for members of Congress that the VA was not forthcoming with what, I mean, there was one example where um, I know a member of Congress from Colorado, Ed Perlmutter, what, was going to go to the facility and check it out, and the VA got pretty defensive about it, um, but the vi- visit never ended up happening and ended up being a bit of a missed opportunity to potentially catch this uh, a couple years before you know, uh, March of last year when that big $1.7 billion price tag got dropped on Colorado. Does Congress bear any blame for the lack of oversight in this project? Well, I think, you know, again, this is just a a major like system failure here that, you know, I, I think one of the, the, the biggest problem from Congress, perhaps, is that there was a real push among uh, the, the Colorado delegation in particular to get this hospital built, that there was, you know, there was a need for it. A lot of people pushed for it. And then perhaps in the rush to get this this built, that uh, the, the, that pressure pushed people more towards shortcuts um, to less oversight that was needed. Uh, a couple of members did call for investigations early in the process. Uh, Michael Bennett, Mike Kaufman. Uh, but, you know, for one, the inspector general, which released this latest report, which is very good, uh, also comes a little bit too late. 
So perhaps Congress could have done a better job of pressuring the IG to, to try to look into it. Um, I know that the VA itself, they also put out their own like, internal investigation of what, what, what went wrong, mm-hmm. and they still have not made that public, which I know a lot of people in Congress are, are pushing for that too. Is there any uh, timeline for that that you know of? Uh, no. Um, it's on VA time, so it could be a while. What does all this say then about the state of the Veterans Administration right now, in your view? Well, I think that this is important looking at to look at this saga is it's important to kind of put the VA overall in context here. I mean, certainly over the years, the VA has had a number of problems, everything from the waitlist scandal that you saw in Phoenix uh, to this, you know, a one billion dollar cost overrun in Aurora, Colorado. Certainly problems. Certainly, they they de- they deserve a lot of the scrutiny that they're getting right now, but at the same time, too, you have to look at you know how we got to this point, and you know the way that I see it, you know here is an agency that is is struggling to deal with a patient population, an aging pop- patient population from the from the Vietnam War, um, from a number of new injuries and expensive injuries that have come about from the wars in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And they're they're trying to do this while at the same time, you know, constantly being criticized. And I, I have to say, I do wonder uh, if, you know, if, if the VA has trouble retaining, you know, good and talented people when they are facing this constant barrage of criticism, um, some of it deserved and, and, and some of it not. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. Mark Matthews is the Washington correspondent for the Denver Post. We spoke about the recent report on construction cost overruns at the VA hospital in Aurora. Up next, a former Denver Bronco who found playing fantasy football was nothing like playing on the field. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. And this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Nate Jackson took a lot of direction during his NFL career, but in his new book, Fantasy Man, a former NFL player's descent into the brutality of fantasy football, the former Denver Broncos tight end is calling the shots. It's ostensibly about a season in the life of his fantasy football team, but Jackson also shares his thoughts on pot use by players and the relationship between players and fans. Nate, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Fantasy football is obviously a big deal to a lot of people, but you go as far as connecting it to, quote, the heart of American manhood. What do you mean by that? Well, the American man, I feel, in a lot of ways, is uh, emasculated these days in, in some of the endeavors that he finds himself in. And football has always attracted uh, men, and it's, it has this kind of tribalism to it. Uh, but fantasy football has kind of compounded that and turned it into a, a different kind of game in which the American man can satisfy that bloodlust, but also satisfy his, um, his need for organization and structure and money and numbers and formula. And I just think it's an interesting study in the American man, and uh, its popularity is indicative of that. Uh, emasculated uh, right now. What does that mean? What do you mean? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think we're drawn as a society to violence for whatever reason, for to blood, to uh, collisions, to aggression. Uh, we watch uh, uh, violent television shows and programs, and we watch fights. And, you know, if there's a fight out in the street, people run to it. It's, it's an attractive prospect, and football has always kind of attracted that, that bloodlust. But it seems like other than 
those types of moments, those organized contests of violence, there doesn't seem to be a, an outlet for the aggression that I think is inherent in, uh, in animals on Earth and men, especially in the society that's very structured. You go to work and you do your job and you earn money and you can go home and pay for the things you need. But I think and some men, not all, but there exists a need to, uh, to push that out and to be aggressive. And there is nowhere to be aggressive. And so I think men uh, find that in football oftentimes. And in different parts of the book, you seem to express mixed emotions about that, that the balance that, that you see, especially with, with fans. At one point, you you call them to task over their reaction to on-field violence, saying, quote, don't get skittish. This is what you wanted. Uh, is that something that you're constantly looking at, that, that fans are, are part of the equation for the player in terms of their uh, their desire to see this, but have concerns about the safety of things? Yeah, I think there's a very interesting dichotomy going on with football in this culture. People love it, they're drawn to it, but simultaneously they're concerned by it. They're concerned by their attraction to it. They want to protect their kids from it, but when a football game is on, they'll be watching it. Um, they're calling for the players to be uh, more aggressive, more violent, but shut up and don't complain about it when you think you're being taken advantage of. And don't be a wimp, get back out there, but don't complain about it. Meanwhile, I'm paying for... Uh, tickets to the game. I'm paying for merchandise. I'm paying for the NFL Sunday ticket to watch all these games. I'm clicking all around on the internet. I'm putting money in these entry fees uh, into this fantasy league. However, uh, I feel absolved of any of any um, liability when it comes to it. I just believe that fans and the media have more responsibility in this than they think. And when we talk about the effects of the game on the human body, on the men who play it, I believe we are all to blame in one way or the other. We're all involved in this. If you have a stake in it at all, if you're covering the sport, if it provides content for your website or your show, uh, then you're involved in it. And stepping back and looking at these men as human beings and not just pawns in a game is what's really important to me and my writing and the things I talk about are intended to humanize these guys. Well, and that's in terms of how fantasy football is all about. Essentially, you're dealing with these men in real life, but in a fantasy world. And your book isn't a how-to uh, on playing fantasy football, but readers may have been expecting a former NFL player to tell them the best way to put together a lineup. So what was your intent in writing this book? Well, when I stopped playing in the NFL, I uh, was asked by a couple different groups of friends of mine, none of whom played in the NFL, none of whom played college football, and a few of them played high school football, but they're just really football and sports fans. And they asked me to be in their fantasy leagues and at first, I was a little reluctant, but then I, I dived into it, and uh, I, after a couple seasons doing it, I realized that it was an interesting separation uh, between what this fantasy world was like, the fairy tale football um, thing that you see on TV, and what it's actually like on the inside. And I realized that, you know, the cultural significance of fantasy football in America is pretty big, and there was quite an opportunity there, I thought, to tell that story a former NFL player plays fantasy football and just expose all the contradictions and all the, you know, the things that go along with it that to me are interesting and also uh, try to explain the nuance of what a former player deals with moving on after life in the NFL and the difficulties he might face. And your imagination really does run wild with fantasy football. Uh, you invented a fake assistant named Tracy, a fake executive office complete with trap doors to dispose of underperforming players after you give them a talking to. Uh, how close is all that to your actual experiences with team management? 
Well, of course, it's, it's, it's hyperbolic in a lot of ways. I was able to kind of embody a lot of the coaching cliches and a lot of the more boisterous coaching personalities that I've seen over the years and put them into one character, me, the coach of my team. Uh, and I have that uh, assistant, my secretary, Tracy, who uh, <clears throat> humors me and all my silly requests. And uh, I don't know how to speak with her. I'm kind of a, a mandolescent who comes to work and uh, mesh shorts and wears visors and you know, doesn't really know how to talk about life. And a lot of times in the world of football, you're told that football is the most important thing and everything else is as a distraction. Life itself becomes a distraction to football people, which is crazy because eventually football is over for the player and he has to go out into the real world. Well, typically the people telling you, uh, that you're a distraction or something you're talking about is a distraction are the football lifers, the coaches and the media people who are going to be in it for life. That's their career. They can do this until they're in their 60s, but football players can't, and they're kept under the thumb of the people who don't want to be distracted by real-life situations. And I felt like that having that coach character uh, allowed me to kind of embody those cliches and do it in a fictional way that brought humor to the situation, but also exposed some of the kind of more heartless uh, ways that we treat these guys. Yeah. When, they are, when they're no longer of use to us in our fantasy league, we just cut them and we never think about them again. And so that trap door was kind of a, a metaphor. A metaphor. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're talking with former Denver Broncos tight end Nate Jackson, the author of the new book, Fantasy Man, a former NFL player's descent into the brutality of fantasy football. Uh, Nate, nearly 75 million people participated in fantasy football uh, in 2015, or fantasy sports, rather. That's according to an article in the New York Post. CNBC reported that DraftKings, a privately owned fantasy sports company, made $300 million in entry fees to its uh, contests in 2014. And some winners have gotten more than a million dollars. But as of now, none of that money goes to the people who are actually playing the games on the field. How do you feel about that? Well, I don't think that's right. And I think because it's such a new thing, uh, you know, the, the union hasn't caught up to that yet, and the players really haven't found a way to monetize their fantasy football value. But um, for so long, football was always about the team. It wasn't about the individual. Uh, the individual was not celebrated, or at least was not supposed to be. You wear helmets and, and a face mask. You never see their face. The coaches kind of preach this. It's about the team mentality. But then fantasy football comes along, and it's really no longer about the team. It's about the individual, his face, his likeness, his actual name, and most disturbingly, his actual medical records, uh, his health care is uh, public fodder. And uh, so people are speculating about his injuries and when he'll be ready, and they're you know, uh, trading him uh, as if he were a piece of meat. And these guys uh, really don't have a say in that. And so, like you said, $300 million in entry fees, not a dollar that goes to the players themselves who are being chosen. Uh, certainly there are some deals they have with NFL teams or the NFL PA, but they're kind of uh, not getting back to the players. The players, they're, they're treated as royalty payments, and the players don't really see those. So what, what about, let's see this, the Denver Broncos, your former player, win a game, but Peyton Manning, your fantasy quarterback, plays poorly. Are you happy? Are you sad? How is it different for you than for, let's say, Joe Blow sitting on the couch watching games on a Sunday? Well, for me, I want to see guys stay healthy and play well. Um, I, 
I do still have a soft spot in my heart for the Broncos, and uh, I, I want to see them win. And it was interesting last year um, to watch the, the difference between the fantasy wisdom and real football wisdom unfold. In my book, I did draft, uh, and in my fantasy league, I did draft a bunch of Broncos, including Peyton Manning, who had, by all accounts, a difficult season last year statistically. However, there is an asterisk next to that, Super Bowl champion quarterback, and people don't seem to give him credit for having been the quarterback of the Super Bowl champion team. The best football team on planet Earth last year was headed by a guy who got killed in the media for being a crappy fantasy football uh, uh, quarterback. And so there's this kind of inherent absurdity in judging them based on statistics when those statistics often equal a lopsided team. What I mean by that is sometimes, you know, you'll have a running back who, who runs for crazy amounts of yards and puts a really big fantasy numbers because his team is out of balance and they end up getting crushed. Well, that guy had a good fantasy team or a good fantasy week, but his actual team got beat and still people don't seem to really care about that anymore. They care more about if their own personal fantasy team wins than the team they grew up rooting for, which I think is kind of problematic. Briefly, I, I want to talk about, uh, in your book, the, the use of pot. Uh, it's still a banned substance in the NFL. Uh, briefly, do you foresee a time when the league's attitude changes on pot use in the NFL? I do. I do. Uh, once they are presented with some quantifiable data that they can, uh, that they can trust uh, by some reputable sources, as of now, it's all... Well, it's not all hearsay, but a lot of a lot of it is, and they're taking they're going to have to take players' anecdotes uh, sincerely, and they have a hard time listening to players when they're trying to use their brains and uh, have, come up with an idea. So we need more research behind it. But Colorado is a wonderful case study of, of of the laws working in the favor of the people, especially in medical uh, in medical instances. I think every single player on the Broncos could go into a doctor's office right now in Denver and get a prescription for medical marijuana whereas uh, they can't use it for their team, and they're being given much, much more dangerous, hard drugs as an alternative and actually having no options to medicate with anything else. And so I think it's a matter of time before the league kind of looks uh, backwards in that in enforcing that. Uh, I think it's probably a couple of years away, but I think it will happen. At one point, you say marijuana helps you recover from ankle surgery better than the medication prescribed by doctors. We've talked a lot recently about traumatic brain injury in prison inmates and extreme sport athletes. Where do you think marijuana fits into that discussion? Well, studies are suggesting it is a neuroprotectant and is involved in neurogenesis, meaning it's, uh, it protects your brain in advance of a brain injury and helps it heal after one. And I, I think there are very few industries in the world in which you know that your workers, a significant percentage of your workers, are going to sustain brain injuries on the job because the job requires you to smash heads. And the more the lawsuits that come down the pike uh, at the NFL, the more settlements they have to deal with, the more they're going to be interested in things that might be able to prevent head injuries and prevent concussions. And I think, you know, probably 50% already of these guys are medicating with it. And in my opinion, it's already allowing them to stay on the field. Uh, it's already keeping the NFL afloat, except they're punished for it if they get caught. And it's, uh, it's a silly contradiction that the NFL is involved with, especially when we are confronted with the scourge of pain pills and opioids in this country. Forty-plus Americans die every single day from pain pill overdoses. And as you know, nobody is dying from overdoses of cannabis. And so uh, and it I think seems NFL... to me that, uh, that that will have to be the way that the, the NFL moves forward with these discussions, because they seem to be valid in, in your eyes. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you for having me. Nate Jackson is a former tight end with the Denver Broncos and the author of the new book, Fantasy Man, a former NFL's player's descent and the brutality of fantasy football. Just ahead, there's a polar bear mascot roaming around Denver, and we're going to learn why. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. There's a polar bear showing up at museums, operas, and concerts lately around the Denver metro area, and we wanted to know why. So we sent CPR's arts reporter Corey Jones to find out. This story begins in an elevator with a polar bear. It's not something you see every day. That's Christy Bassiner. She directs communications at the Denver Art Museum. That's where I'm on this elevator with a polar bear who, yes, has a name. Popsicle is the mascot for the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District. And so we're here taking Popsicle around the art museum and introducing him to families so that they know about SCFD. You may have seen these four letters around the metro area, too. S-C-F-D. This is a sales and use tax that generates one penny from every $10 you spend. That money goes to cultural organizations, from big museums to small theater companies. We're talking more than $54 million from the tax last year. Bassiner says the money helps the Denver Art Museum provide its programming and host free days. It's imperative to what we do. The museum got more than $7 million from SCFD last year. Voters first passed the cultural tax in 1988. They've since voted to extend it twice. And now, people in seven metro counties will decide whether to renew it again in November. And that brings us back to the bear. (laughs) Some people go crazy for this thing. Kids love it. Now's a good time to clarify that this is just a person in a suit. Still, people want photos with Popsicle. I'm getting a selfie with Bear. Hi! This is the kind of reaction Floyd Cerulli wants. He's a Denver pollster who directed the first SCFD campaign. And 30 years later, he's involved in this campaign to renew the cultural tax. And that little polar bear uh, is an important part of it because I think it's now become the symbol. That symbol is the result of public polls that Cerulli's team conducted in the 80s before SCFD went to voters. An ape was very big. A dinosaur was very big uh, in terms of uh, popular with the public. Uh, elephant was uh, very big. But it's obvious that a bear won. Cerulli points to a big expansion back then at the Denver Zoo. In 1987, a new permanent exhibition called Northern Shores opened. It had habitats for otters, seals, and polar bears, which you can still see swim underwater. It was a huge hit. Then, in the 90s, polar bear pandemonium struck again. Klondike and snow. We had a couple of baby polar bears that were born and raised uh, at the zoo. Those cubs got tons of news coverage and helped set attendance records at the zoo. Polar bears became even more popular around Denver. And, Cerulli says, they make for a fun campaign logo. This sort of raises it above the din of, of harsh politics and says, here's something you can feel good about. It also gives the campaign an emotional edge, says John Caldera. He's president of the Independence Institute, a free market think tank in Denver. Behind this tax increase is this idea of, oh my God, we have to do this, not only for the polar bears, but for your kids who won't be able to see the polar bears. He says the tactic is fear-based, which is fallacious, and it's manipulative. 
Caldera is against this cultural tax. To be clear, he loves the arts, but he doesn't think they should be publicly funded. Caldera says the $2 million raised for this campaign would be better spent as donations to these institutions. But there are a lot of people who are connected who like this, and they know how to use the system in order to raise money so that they can subsidize what they feel is culturally important. The pro-SCFD message will be loud and clear throughout the Denver area this fall. You'll see it on TV, on Facebook, and on 15,000 yard signs. Each one has a polar bear. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. We have a video of Popsicle, the SCFD, uh, the SCFD polar bear mascot, at our CPR News Facebook page, and find a list of organizations that get SCFD funding at CPRnews.org. And just a note that CPR and other public media outlets aren't funded by SCFD. About a quarter of the state's school districts aren't following a new law aimed at uh, following a law rather aimed at transparency. That's according to Colorado Ethics Watch. That group looked at the websites of more than 170 districts. It found that many failed to post the minutes of school board meetings online, as required by a 2014 state law. The state's largest districts, including Denver and Douglas and Jefferson counties, follow the law. Ethics Watch director Luis Toro told CPR's Mike Lamp more districts should. People want to know what's going on in their local school boards, and the minutes are the easiest way to do that. Some school districts post the entire video of their meetings on their website, which is great, but not everyone has the time to sit through an entire meeting uh, on video, or they want to just jump to the part that interests them. So the minutes help with that because they tell you what happened during a meeting and what the votes were, and it doesn't take very long to go through that. Before there was an internet and before school districts had websites, did they do something else then, or did people just not know what happened at school board meetings unless they attended themselves? People just didn't know. Now, there's always been requirements that minutes be made publicly available, but before the advent of the internet, it wasn't easy to do. You'd have to go to an office and look them up. and They were always been public documents, but it's just much easier to get them in this internet age. And what we've learned is that people expect that when school districts have websites, that minutes and other important documents be posted on that website. Have you contacted any of the schools that you found to be out of compliance? We were focusing more on the school districts that were in compliance. We wanted to uh, actually praise the ones who were doing it right, which is most of the large school districts. Uh, We have been in touch with some of the smaller ones. We found that one of them had been removing minutes, and so they claimed that they were in compliance because they would post the minutes for Uh, three or four months and then take them down. Now, in our view, that's not really complying with the law because people expect the minutes to be available and they really want to be able to go back and read a bunch of minutes over time. So we think that people should leave the minutes up and there's no real reason to take them down. Are you aware of any reasons that the districts might give for not posting the minutes of their meetings? Either they don't have the staff or their website doesn't accommodate that kind of thing or, or what? We have not heard anything like that, and the, those arguments were considered when the legislature passed this law, and they were basically rejected. So the way the law is written is that if you have a website, then you must post minutes. Now, we did find there's one school district in the state that doesn't have a website, and therefore they're not required to post minutes on the website, obviously, because they don't have one. But the vast majority of districts do have websites, and so we don't think it's asking a lot to post minutes, which are usually just a short document on that website. Could school districts face any consequences for not following the law? Not really. That's one reason we've wanted to do this as a public report as opposed to taking some legal action. 
we thought it would be better to use publicity to try to get school districts to voluntarily comply rather than try to go through a legal route. And the law doesn't really specify consequences for noncompliance. It just says school districts shall do this. So your expectation is that uh, something like this conversation will get out to the public and residents of school districts will become aware that their districts are not compliant and that there will be some pressure on the school districts then to start putting their minutes up online. Yes, and I think that's already happening. We heard from some school districts in Weld County that admitted that they hadn't been complying and they promised that they're going to do so going forward. So that's exactly what we want to see happen. The majority of school districts that are in full compliance show that it can be done. It's just a matter of making sure it is done. Louise Toro is director of Colorado Ethics Watch. You heard him say they found one district that doesn't have a website. That's the Revere School District in Sedgwick County on Colorado's northeast corner. And that's our show for this Friday. But before we go, our next interview with Governor John Hickenlooper is coming up. What do you want to ask him? You can email us at news at CPR.org. That's news at CPR.org with your questions for Governor Hickenlooper. Thanks to our audio engineer, Brady McNellis, my director, Stephanie Wolf, producers, Andrew Dukakis, Anthony Cotton, and Michelle P. Fulcher. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook, and our executive editor is Ryan Warner. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend.